Hi there, this is Structured Rambling, a podcast about literature, ideas in literature, the texts, the themes, the virtues and beyond. My name is Paul, I'm a reader, a writer, a teacher, a fan, and a pig owner. Hello and good day and welcome to another episode of Structured Rambling, my podcast about literature and its ideas. Today is a more of a rambling podcast. I'm going to be talking about a concept across uh, several texts, uh, mostly films, but books too. And I'm talking today about the writer as hero. You see, writers are observant people. They have to be. It's their job to look at the world and reflect it back to us. Uh, to show its truths, its virtues, its faults. I know that sounds pompous, but it it's so evident in the results that I believe it's a, it, it's the truth. Uh, if that's if it's too artsy for you to think of, frankly, I don't know why you're listening to a podcast about a guy talking about books. But writers are also narcissistic. Something about being smart, observant, creative, but in the end, under doing real work can make them self-absorbed, self-obsessed, cynical, and critical. As young writers, we're often told to write what we know. This is very good advice, but of course, if taken too literally, it, it would rob the world of all the great fantasy and science fiction and horror out there. There would be no Harry Potter for you. So it's good that writers take the write-what-you-know advice with several dashings of salt upon it. J.K. Rowling does not know what it's like to be a wizard, but she does know what it's like to be a teenager and to feel aspects of life are hard or unfair. Something that's consistently noteworthy to me is how many times in fiction and film the hero is a writer. Now, writers often write themselves in as heroes in stories, and often in nonfiction they spring up as heroes or at least protagonists in stories. Obviously, this is because writers are the people who report the world to us and its events. They get heavy favor as viewers, supporting major characters, uh, sometimes being major characters, protagonists, heroes. Now, What got this going in my head is a little bit of a weird story because my kids are, are uh, going through a monster movie phase. Um, there's a, there's a King Kong versus Godzilla film coming down, uh, sometime this year. And, uh, my youngest son has got really into the big new Godzilla films and, um, both of them have, have taken an interest in, in, in both. So, um, we, as a family, uh, sat down to watch the Peter Jackson 2005 remake of the original King Kong. It's it's the plot of the the original black and white film, but but reworked and extended, and the the ape is made to look more like an ape uh, with our better understanding of them now. The 1933 film was a classic, not because it was especially good, but because it was so groundbreaking and unique. The main hero, 
after Kong himself and Fay Ray's voice box is uh, Bruce Cabot, who plays first mate uh, on the ship that goes to Skull Island, uh, Jack Driscoll. It's a Hollywood hero named Jack. There's your big cliche already. It's just that's the biggest pet peeve of mine is American heroes named Jack. Um, but in Peter Jackson's film, Driscoll is rewritten to be a writer. Um, it played by Adrian Brody. Uh, his character is conned into traveling to Skull Island by Jack Black's director, Denim. Um, and it's he's, at first, a completely different style of character. Now, the, the characters in the 1933 film aren't nearly as fleshed out as this, obviously, but still, they make a choice to have Brody's character as the writer hero, and then, but they're still a first mate hero. There, there's a lot of sort of tertiary characters in this movie, uh, and about a 15 minute extended fight scene with three tyrannosaurs. But I, I digress. Um, Driscoll's character, the writer, falls for the girl, just like. Driscoll, the first mate in 1933, did. And when things go south with the uh, indigenous people of Skull Island, with the dinosaurs and giant insects and bats, Driscoll is suddenly very adept with the Tommy gun and can tough it out with the best of them, risking life and limb for the girl he fell for the day before. Over the course of the this three-hour movie, he's going to do a fancy some fancy cab driving to draw Kong off of Times Square. He's going to stand on top of the Empire State Building. Um, these are not little feats. When did a humble playwright gather up these heroic abilities? I guess men were just made of sterner stuff in the 1930s and Brody's just a typical dude, you know. When it comes down to it, I can use a submachine gun and drive backwards and climb tall buildings and hang from bats. But are we to assume every writer of the time had some hidden Hemingway buried inside him? I mean, submachine guns don't strike me as user-friendly. This writer hero is, of course, the Hemingway ideal. Ernest Hemingway once said, In order to write li about life, you must first live it. And he certainly did. He was wounded uh, on the Italian front in World War I. He covered the Spanish Civil War. He hunted big game in Africa, he boxed, he fished, he drank, he womanized, he shot guns. In many ways, he was a man's man, but he would find most modern writers like me to be sissies. This may be a resistance to his own deeply buried effeminism. There's been recent theories about uh, uh, that, but that's the sort of thing for, for somebody else to dive into. Most of Hemingway's stories... Even the most far-fetched adventures, like For Whom the Bell Tolls, are based on his real experiences. But most of us don't get to go to war, or shoot elephants, or be misogynists, hopefully. We don't get Hemingway's background for our material. Um, David Fincher, a great director, recently released the film Mank, the story of Herman Mankiewicz, the man who allegedly wrote Citizen Kane on his own though Orson Welles um, shared the screenplay credit for it and an Academy Award. 
in earlier in an earlier episode, I wrote about uh, or I wrote about I talked about the fiction of nonfiction uh, of the heroes of the news with their pens and typewriters or keyboards uh, affecting change. Um, compelling action, exposing truth, doing good. Um, the theme of that episode stems from my disgust with social media um, and its worshippers and their attack on the on what they call the mainstream media, which is just media that has facts in its support. But one of the films I discussed was Citizen Kane. It's a, it just, just seems like a movie I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to. It's Citizen Kane. It's a biggie. Um, Fincher's film falls into that dangerous fictionality of the biopic, but it's an interesting parallel text to watch alongside King. Uh, Fincher shot it in black and white. Uh, many of the shots are made to look like ones we've seen in Citizen Kane with those um, strong close-ups with a blurry background and things like that. Um, the composers, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, even used 1930s vintage instruments for the soundtrack. Gary Oldman is superb. He plays Mank, and though it's su- supposedly a biography, he falls into the cliche, uh, a cliche so consistent that it's truth um, of the hard-drinking jerk who talks down to everyone, sabotages most of his meaningful relationships, but is a brilliant writer. The bottle is a a sad but common vice for writers, real or fictional, and Mank is the same suffering genius genius we've seen before. Stephen King. Stephen King has often peopled his novels with writers as characters, and they're often his heroes, or at least one of the major characters in them. Uh, And these are regular writers, regular folks. Usually they're men. They're usually autobiographical of King to an extent. Um, but what characters aren't. And despite the fact that like 95% of the time they face horror and over 50% of that time that horror is supernatural, they're not Hemingways. They're just regular dudes, family men, pretty smart, fairly neurotic, generally alcoholics, uh, not the type of guys who can suddenly pick up Tommy guns and fire them accurately. We can relate to them as they face devil clowns or haunted off-season hotels or vampire hordes or sadistic superfans. One thing about King's writer heroes is they write. Uh, King provides an interesting look at the craft through characters who are usually busy doing other extreme things. Um, I've read a lot of Stephen King over my lifetime, and um, here, here, here's a handful of, of examples. So we've got uh, um, Ben Mears, uh, who is a, a writer who returns to a place called Salem's Lot in that novel of the same name to write a book about a childhood trauma he suffered there. He talks about having a productive morning of producing fresh copy. Then he fights vampires. Uh, Billy Denborough, Will Denborough, uh, channels his own trauma in It uh, in the town of Derry as a kid to a massively successful horror career. Then he fights a demon clown. Jack Torrance suffers the most of all these guys in The Shining, not just because he's got cabin fever in a possessed hotel uh, and is slowly going insane, but he also has writer's block. And then in Misery, Paul Sheldon is the patient 
prisoner of his demented superfan, Annie. Um, more than any of King's novels, I found this book to be about a writer's process, to be about his inspirations, his need to break out of genre fiction. There are whole pages uh, of type of the novel he is writing within the novel, complete with handwritten ends because the typewriter has a broken end key. Um, it's inspiring and incredibly distracting from a book that involves a psychopath who chops off a man's foot. Uh, these four examples all show aspects of the writer writing. That is, in productivity, doing his job. Despite the wild and often supernatural challenges King's heroes face, he still slips in a lot of aspects of the craft. Now, back to Jack Driscoll in King Kong, the most we see him write is some absolute tripe on a typewriter, uh, specifically the slow-motion extreme close-up as he types in the name Skull Island. It appears that the more a writer is shown actually writing in a text, the less of a Hemingway he is. And maybe that's why in the films, I can think of about Hemingway, specifically uh, Hemingway and Gellhorn, Papa and Midnight in Paris, you don't often see him as a character doing all that much actual writing. That's interesting. But there are loads more Hemingway films I haven't seen, so it's not a fully tested theory. I'm going to end this rambling podcast about the writer as heroes talking about two fine older films that I re-watch and rewatch that feature writers as heroes. The first is the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink, um, which was actually the first film that made me fall in love with their work. I didn't know when I saw Raising Arizona that it was them, and, and it was a, a, a good comedy, but Barton Fink is where I was introduced to the genius of the Coen Brothers, and I've been a fan ever, ever since. Um, this film combines two of my favorite constants in Hollywood, uh, a story about a writer like Mank, and something set in the golden age of Hollywood. This is uh, about 1941. It's about, actually we know it's 1941 because Japanese attack Pearl Harbor at the end of the movie. Um, it's about the titular character, Barton Fink, who is a successful and passionate New York playwright, like Jack Driscoll in King Kong, but minus the machine guns. Um, he's he's uh, sucked up by the Hollywood machine, uh, trademark Cohen strangeness ensues and another time I'll analyze this beauty of a movie for you I promise I'll do a better job with it I love this movie but suffice to say the whole thing might be a metaphor for hell I'll come to that another time key to Barton's story is that he's a fish out of water he's uh, he's obsessed with telling the story of the common man honest real stories about real people the irony is his success causes him to overlook real people when they present him with their stories, when they're sitting right in front of him. In Hollywood, Barton suffers crippling writing writer's block, and uh, the bizarre characters he meets, including fellow writer and souse uh, W.P. Mayhew, uh, only worsen his state. The expectation that he write a genre film full of cliché confuses him and worsens his suffering. Barton's words about the common man would be meaningful if he didn't spend most of the movie ignoring the common man, something that ends up in disaster for him in the end. But when, after being through horror and tragedy, 
Um, Barton is finally able to write and we see this brief window on the experience and the celebration of the process. He spends a full day writing the entire screenplay, which he feels is the best work ever. Uh, and then he goes out to celebrate. The next scene um, is Barton at a USO dance um, with this euphoria having completed his work. Um, but he begins ranting to the uniforms about how the mind is his his battlefield and this is where he serves the common man. It's his uniform. I'll play that scene. You've probably seen it before. It gets quoted lots. Even though this isn't a well-known Coen Brothers movie, this particular scene tends to be known. So he's out dancing, just giving her at this USO dance and he's going to be accosted by a sailor. And then a fight breaks out after uh, Barton says his famous speech. You'll see. You'll hear. Barton's dancing with his eyes closed. He's just, he's in ecstasy having completed his piece. And it goes downhill from there, but it's just that that great great rant. This is a writer talking about his craft. Uh, we don't get to brag like this very much, us writers. It's 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 a hard sell with the common man, but uh, it's still just such a good moment. The great irony of the film is tied to the fact that it is uh, it is an allegorical movie. Um, the, that irony is Barton has written something beautiful that is taken away from him. Um, he doesn't, it doesn't get published. It doesn't get made into a movie and he doesn't even get to keep it. It becomes somebody else's property for what greater hell can the writer experience, but to write something that no one will read. And then about 10 years later, um, the late great Sean Connery appeared in a Gus Van Sant film called Finding Forrester that made a little splash and then quickly disappeared. However, it's it's a favorite of mine, especially of this topic of, of movies about writers. Uh, and every time I see it, I can't help but feeling compelled to write afterwards. It, 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 it awakens the, the desire to create in me. Um, if you don't know it, the story is simple. Connery plays uh, William Forrester, uh, a reclusive writer, 
who once wrote the great American novel uh, 50 years ago and then has has been a ghost ever since. Um, he's in he's in hiding. He's loosely based on J.D. Salinger, but that isn't played up too much, but it, it's there. Um, he forms an unlikely friendship with a 16-year-old kid, uh, Jamal Wallace, um, who's this brilliant writing protege from the Bronx, who's also a very good basketball player. Um, because of the, his brilliance, because of his test scores, um, Jamal gets a scholarship to a private school where his writing flourishes under uh, Forrester's private lessons, um, but his background makes him suspect to a professor played by the diabolical F. Murray Abraham. The plot is, you know, it's a cliche. Uh, in fact, it's simply goodwill hunting for the humanities department. But the advice that Forrester gives about writing um, still thrills me. When I teach a creative writing course, I often start it by showing the scene where William uh, Forrester is telling Jamal how to get started. words we write for ourselves are always so much better than the words we write for others. Move. Sit. Go ahead. Go ahead and what? Write. What are you doing? I'm writing, like you'll be, when you start punching those keys. Is that a problem? No, I'm just thinking. No, <laughs> no thinking. That comes later. You write your first draft with your heart. And you rewrite with your head. The first key to writing is to write, not to think. Jesus. The first thing, the, f the way to write is to write. It's just the best. It's just the best. It's simple and it's true. It's lovely. Amidst the plot of this movie are the little gems that are completely relevant to the craft and they're they're beyond the the film. Another is when Forrester talks about the the wonderful moment where you sit, just you, and you read your completed draft before you do anything with it. The climax of the film involves um, a reading uh, and. Two professors at two points hold up Jamal's paper uh, that, that William has read. One says um, to Forrester, uh, mistaking that it is, because Forrester has not said yet that it's Jamal's writing, uh, the quality of your words is something we should all hope to aspire to. Um, after it's been revealed that it's Jamal's words, uh, the second professor holds up the paper and says, Jamal, these are your words? 16. Remarkable. Words. The quality of words, the basic building block of our communication. When we use them well, even masterfully, 
The structures we make gleam. They sing, they last. Communication and art are human gifts and are some of the signs of how far we've come. They, they are, art is the achievement of civilization. Writers deserve to be heroes, though not for trading in typewriters for Tommy guns. Writers deserve to be heroes for how they elevate us all through their words, what they say, and what they show. Thanks for listening. Have yourself a great day.